Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. February is Black History Month, a time to honor the essential contributions of Black people in the story of America. We're devoting a couple of Think Humanities podcasts to Black History Month. National and local events and online celebrations are taking place throughout to focus attention on Black people's achievements and history. Since 1976, the U.S. has officially marked the contributions of Black people and celebrated the history and culture of the Black experience in America every February. The New York Times said on uh, this topic and on their 1619 Project website, in August 1619, a ship appeared on the horizon near Point Comfort, Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to colonists. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. Today's guest on the podcast is Alistine Turley. She's a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, and she was the Freedom Story Project Director for the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. She's available, uh, as you know, uh, as all of our Speakers Bureau members are, to visit your organization, church, classroom, to speak about uh, her expertise on the Underground Railroad, the Civil War, and other topics related to African-Americans during this celebration of Black History Month this February. Alistine, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Bill, for the invitation. Good to join you. Alistine, why is it important that during this month that all of America, all people are celebrating Black History Month? Mainly because Black history is American history. There's, uh, as you mentioned in your lead in, there's very little aspect of American history that has not involved the input of African-Americans, Native Americans, and African-Americans tend to be one of the oldest groups in America outside of our Native uh, Indian families. So we have a very early history. So if you want to tell a complete American history, there's no way you can do that without including knowledge of African-American history. When I uh, introduced you, I talked to, um, I I told you and our listeners about uh, your expertise in the Underground Railroad and American memory is the title of one. The other is African-Americans in the Civil War. Let's talk about both of those topics. And let's do talk about the Underground Railroad, which is in many aspects, it has been with us for hundreds of years. Um, It has been through many interpretations and thoughts and processes. It seems to have uh, had a revival of late, or at least in some people's uh, minds because of the uh, the series on television that people have watched uh, after the book was written. Uh, So many people have commented on uh, the series. Uh, tell me uh, how you begin your presentation and, and what you think uh, the whole of America needs to know more about the Underground Railroad. 
Well, just as you mentioned, the 1619 Project, what all of America needs to understand is that Underground Railroad, even though historically we say the years or heightened years were between 1820 and 1865, it's important to understand African-Americans upon arrival uh, began to make their escape, particularly across the Appalachian Mountains into free territories or territories at that time that were inhabited primarily by native residents of this land. So it's one of America's earliest uh, freedom struggles. It is one of America's first interracial freedom struggles. There were people who in this country who had actually fled Europe seeking the same freedoms that African-Americans were seeking and became very active in promoting freedom for all human beings including enslaved Africans. So again, if we're talking about the formation of America, especially here in Kentucky, which was so central to the Underground Railroad story, it, it all three uh, escape quarters identified by the National Park Service in 1994 have a connection to Kentucky. And Eastern Kentucky hosts some of the oldest underground railroad enclaves and hiding places than any other place in the country. So to know our state better, to know the nation better, these are very important stories to uncover. I'd like to talk about both of those aspects of the Underground Railroad, but I first want to return to one of the statements that you made right at the beginning that the Underground Railroad, although prominent uh, during the Civil War years, was in play and in place long before the Civil War began. Right. Some of the earliest escapes are from British enslavers uh, when we were still part of the British colonies. And so you have a lot of African-Americans who made their way into uh, French Canadian um, cities into the Caribbean as part of the rum and sugar plantations. You have escapes happening from the moment African-Americans have a chance to go to, to make that attempt when they're first being brought to this country. So when you go into the Appalachian Mountains and we talk about the Melungeon people of the mountains, many a times those early histories are uh, associated with enslaved African-Americans who escaped their captors in the, uh, on the coast, East Coast, and found freedom in the mountains. Uh, Alistine, tell me, uh, tell our listeners about the Melungeons. Well, the Melungeons are uh, primarily East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, Appalachian Mountains, North Carolina, those areas. And they are really, DNA has proven, they're a mix of Native American, European, African-American heritage. And it's, uh, there've been quite a more recent books written on their history, but that's a history that's been with us a long time. We have to keep in mind that early in America, race was not um, as we define it now. You know, over time we have developed this concept of race and division and separation into categories, but at one time it was not as offensive a nature as it is now. But so over time, Melungeons were seen as outcasts, but really they're some of America's earliest mixed race populations. Is there a um, distinguishing factor about uh, Melungeons that 
for a time at least, separated them from other Europeans that had settled in Appalachia? Well, of course, I think uh, the, the racial mix would have made them distinctive in many ways. Over time, I think it has become less so. So those people who are able to trace their Melungeon history know who their, uh, what their backgrounds are based on. And today's uh, DNA has made it evident to many of them that they do have this um, African, Native American heritage in their bloodline. So in many ways, this is how they define themselves. You mentioned, um, I think, three areas of um, Kentucky that were key to the Underground Railroad. Well, the national, in 1994, the National Park Service, under the uh, signature of President William Clinton, began the, a national survey of underground railroad locations throughout the country. And that study, which is available to anyone who wants to read it online under the National Park Service Underground Railroad Initiative, uh, this really defined three major corridors of escape that African-Americans employed to find freedom uh, beyond their owners. And so I was saying that all three of those corridors passed through Kentucky, whether it was through the Appalachian Mountains, whether it was through the central bluegrass region terminating in Cincinnati, or whether it was along the Ohio Mississippi River corridor in Western Kentucky. So there are three major corridors that the National Park Service um, decided, and that's East Coast, which would have been Appalachia. And then you have a central corridor, which runs right up the middle of Kentucky from the deep south. And then you have the western corridor, which runs along the western border of Kentucky into uh, Canada, as well as Illinois and the free territories of Indiana and up from Texas. So there's no way that Kentucky cannot be a part of it. It's known as a pass through state. A pass-through state. I'm just letting that sort of sink in for a minute. Are there, are there still remnants or markers of uh, in Kentucky of those uh, escape routes uh, using the Underground Railroad? Not as many as there should be, Bill. Which is is which is uh, kind of my work. But probably the most identified are in Louisville along the Ohio River there uh, in Portland and other, uh, Portland I think pretty much has accepted they were the last stop north uh, on the Underground Railroad for freedom. But uh, here in Eastern Kentucky, of course, we have uh, Maysville and into Marietta, the mountain passes into Marietta, Ohio, which has been pretty well documented by the National Park Service and several other states around the nation who actually, um, have stories online about slaves who escaped through Kentucky into Marietta and then further north into Canada. So those are probably our best documented locations. And along the Cumberland Gap coming out of uh, other places, there's some heavy documentation and slave narratives that talk about this. So uh, we could do a better job, but right now I think many people are, now that they're aware of the history, are starting to look at it more critically. How prominent or what stories uh, does your research tell you about Maysville and how key they were to the Underground Railroad? 
Well, as much as we love to talk about Cincinnati, I have to say that uh, Eastern Kentucky, that that route out of Mason County and uh, Fleming County, probably were some of the most heavily traveled. Because of the abolitionists, it's interesting that when Kentucky became more strict on expelling abolitionists from the state about the 1840s, they really opened up many of these gateways uh, in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, for more assistance because all the banished people from Kentucky did was go across the river and immediately began to help others find freedom. So Marietta is probably one of the most heavily traveled and it's, it's uh, staffed primarily by Quakers who lived in Southern Ohio and in the mountains who were very anti-slavery. And so uh, Marietta becomes a major terminus for those escaping from the mountains. Ironton, those places along the river that are easily accessible by boat and by um, ferry. What was the what was the difference in being on uh, in Kentucky uh, in the area that you just described in Maysville and going? a short distance across the Ohio River, treacherous as it was at times, uh, depending on the weather, of course. Uh, Ohio was a, a free state at that time? Yes, it was a free territory. It entered the Union as a free territory. It was a huge territory. As you know, we got five states out of uh, that Northwest Territory, and they were all free. And Kentucky had the distinguished, we've got the longest border of uh, adjacent to all these free states. And so Kentucky become, Warsaw, Kentucky, uh, which uh, Berea College Reverend uh, John Greg Fee's family was very active in Warsaw, helping slaves escape. So people, it, it was just, if you look at it logically, there's no way that Kentucky was not critical in African-Americans reaching their freedom in free territories, passing into the Northwest Territory. And there are countless uh, stories and scholarship research uh, that shows that uh, many uh, successful uh, African-Americans who were enslaved found um, a new life in Ohio. Um, And I know you could you could list a number of uh, from history, but I'm just thinking in particular because I've just read it recently that uh, Judge uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan's half brother um if that that is to be true also uh, they were involved in uh, the danville uh, area um uh and he uh, had quite a success in europe but also in cincinnati in fact i think he made had some considerable wealth in cincinnati lost it at uh, one time and then uh, ended up uh, settling uh, again in Cincinnati and doing quite well in business. Uh, are there other examples of other prominent uh, African-Americans that uh, found success by just traveling over the river? Well, yes. And and that is the benefit also of Kentucky, because pro- probably many of the major stories like Henry Bibb, uh, who is from Western Kentucky, Lewis Hayden, who escaped from Lexington, Kentucky, Josiah Henson, who escaped from Davies County, Kentucky, who settled, created a huge, uh, which is now a Canadian national landmark up in uh, Northern Canada, 
who escaped from. So we have at least 20 popular African-American narratives that came from Kentucky and settled in either Ohio or Canada primarily after 1854 uh, with passage of the uh, fugitive slave law, most African-Americans who had found freedom either in Oberlin, Ohio or other Northern uh, cities felt much safer living in Canada than they did in remaining in the United States. So usually about 1850s, you see African-Americans not really seeking freedom in America. It's, it's not certain that they can maintain it, even if they're in a free state. So you see them moving to the West, out to California, or you see them in Canada or Mexico. We're going to take a pause now and hear from our underwriter. But on the other side of this, uh, Alistine, uh, your other uh, talk for our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau is on African-Americans in the Civil War. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to introduce that segment uh, after we hear from this word from Spalding University. At Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing, Serious writers thrive with one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel to Paris for short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Alistine Turley is our guest on Think Humanities podcast today. She was the Freedom Story Project Director for the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. She's a Uh, lives in Clay City, Kentucky, and she's as a member of our Speakers Bureau available to you uh, for discussions about the Underground Railroad. And now I'm going to ask her, if she will, to talk about uh, the role that African-Americans in in Kentucky and throughout the South played in the Civil War, uh, Black Kentuckians in the War of Emancipation and Freedom that changed the social direction of American society, as we all know. And in some ways, um, Alistine, it seems like we're still battling that uh, today, doesn't it? We are still battling it. And this is, again, a good reason why we need to continue to share a real American history that's more inclusive, because I think the false impression of America results when we don't know a complete history. So if we're talking about the civil, keep in mind, African-Americans have been in the military ever since America fought fought its first war. They fought with the British, they fought against the British. So from the country's founding, African-Americans have been part of the fighting force to defend this country. That's number one. The Civil War becomes important because it's the first time African-Americans are actually legally recognized as members of the military before they may have fought, but they were fighting as the property of someone else. But during the summer, uh, during the Civil War, they were actually acknowledged as men and as fighting men. They were given the uniform, they were given the the weaponry, which was a very frightening uh, idea 
for many Americans, African-Americans that were armed was a very frightening idea. But they proved to be uh, Lincoln in his own comments talks about that he could have lost the war without the involvement of, of colored troops, United States colored troops. So they were very, very uh, effective fighters and because they knew what they were fighting for. It wasn't just for America, but for the reunification of America, but for themselves as well. Do we have any idea about the loss of life uh, of African-Americans during the Civil War? The loss of life among African-Americans was extremely high. Out of the, I think, uh, I forget the numbers right now, the number that enlisted, I wanna say it's something like 100,000 men who enlisted. The percentage of death was extremely high, primarily because uh, the Confederate soldiers had a take no prisoners policy toward enslaved African-Americans who were in uniform. So unlike white Union soldiers who were given an opportunity to surrender and be imprisoned in a prison camp, African-Americans, the only way they could save their lives was if they would be willing to surrender, take off the uniform and resubmit to slavery. And uh, African-Americans in uniform Uh, The most popular of which, of course, is the Fort Pillow Massacre, where 349 African-American soldiers were killed at Fort Pillow simply because they would not surrender their uniform. So there were very few African-American men, once they were in uniform, they would rather die than take the uniform off. So that accounts for, um, I think, part of the higher death toll because it was just a standard policy from Confederate generals that African-Americans were not to be taken prisoner. And then also you had the case of if they were wounded, the issue of receiving treatment during war. Lewis Hayden's son, who enlisted in the Navy and died at the Battle of Baton Rouge, he dies primarily because he's refused medical care even though he is on a ship and he is wounded along with the other naval officers, they're not uh, doctors or nurses who uh, agree to treat him. So death can occur uh, not only in battle, but just in general from being a person enlisted in the military. Were there enslaved that fought in the war for the Union? Um, And I'm going to ask you if there were fighting for the Confederacy too, but fighting for the Union that gained their their freedom from uh, their military service? Yes. And Kentucky, that was the, the majority of African-Americans who gained their freedom in 1863 after, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, once it was issued, also had a provision where uh, African-Americans could join the military force And so with that issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, you had many African-Americans flying to Camp Nelson here in Kentucky, uh, who other than Louisiana uh, was the largest uh, encampment for receiving and training African-American soldiers. So many uh, owners here in Kentucky lost their property to the military Now, Kentucky began by saying, okay, uh, we will compensate you for your lost slave, but that soon died down. Uh, So slaves who could make it to Camp Nelson 
or any other of the eight, there were eight major posts around Kentucky. If they could make it to any of those posts to enlist, they could be free. Uh, I, I'm learning so much from you uh, today, uh, Alistine, and, and I know our listeners are, and thank you very much uh, for sharing your knowledge. You, you say there were, there were seven or so, eight uh, other posts, and uh, frankly, I know historians and, and scholars are probably familiar with that. Uh, other than Camp Nelson, where are they? Oh, my gosh, they were all over Kentucky, and I knew the minute I said that, I knew you were going to ask me. And I, uh, all of the major communities, Bowling Green, I know, had an enlistment, a large enlistment encampment, uh, uh, Flemingsburg. So they, they were just where recruiters would go and receive the soldiers. And then eventually they would be transferred to Camp Nelson for training. Were they, uh, those encampments, um, I'm intrigued by this, uh, were those encampments uh, based on uh, what we now see today at Camp Nelson, where they they probably weren't that large. They weren't that large. Yeah. And it was primarily to provide an opportunity and protection under the law if someone did want to enlist. It would be if you knew the major enlisting uh, locations in the state during the Civil War, chances are they those would be the same encampments where African-Americans would, would flee in order to be covered by federal authority and protected by the military if they wanted to serve. Were there members of the African-American community who were uh, members of the Confederacy? Well, I cannot honestly say that I know that answer, so I'm not gonna fudge it. I will say that I know in places like Georgia and Texas, the Confederates conscripted their slaves. And while I know there's been a couple of books written about uh, Black Confederates, I honestly do not know of any Black Confederate who was actually in battle. Um, I don't think the Confederates were very nervous about giving their enslaved populations weapons. That's number one. And number two, they were often sent to replace uh, uh, an owner who may have returned home to care for his property. And then he would send a slave in his place. And usually those slaves were used for what they call fatigue duty, building encampments, uh, doing things to support the Confederate initiative. And really it was Lincoln was inspired by the Confederate inscription of African-Americans into their uh, supplemental forces that I think encouraged him to include African-Americans in the Union forces as well, but as fighting men, not simply as workers. Uh, Tell us about this very interesting project that just finished up uh, last year uh, that is um, uh, prominent in in the story that uh, uh, you were involved in and uh, that the entire nation was involved in. Uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities created this. Uh, tell us about uh, the the Freedom uh, Story Project uh, for the international uh, storytelling. Well, that's where it took place, but tell us about the Freedom Story Project. Oh, it was an exciting project and wonderful to do because um, for the first time, we wanted to look at the Central Appalachia, Blacks in Central Appalachia from their early arrival until more modern times. And so there are 12 stories 
that uh, included, number one, a storyteller, a professional African-American storyteller, and then uh, academics and community scholars who could talk about Black history in their particular part of Central Appalachia. And of course, this includes North Carolina, East Tennessee, Kentucky, and uh Parts of northern parts of Georgia that are considered part of that Appalachian community. So it was wonderful. We had um, over a million at the end of the project. Uh, we successfully reached out to over a million people who listened to the narratives when you add them all up. And um, it was just, it's online. So even though we are done with the project, those stories remain on the International Storytelling Center website and YouTube pages for people who might want to go back and listen. So we had some great uh, nationally known presenters who talked about this history and hopefully inspired others to want to know more about their local Appalachian communities. Were you one of those storytellers? No. I was the moderator for each one of these. So I was my responsibility to gather and put together the stories and the panels and to uh, follow up with, with each of our storytellers. And from this, we hope to produce uh, a book of all 12 of the stories with background information. Of course, each podcast was only 90 minutes and you can only do so much in 90 minutes if you have a storyteller. But uh, I think it's worth looking at listening to They'll Never Grow Old. It's information that I think all America needs to explore. You said all of America, and I'm uh, concentrating on Kentucky. And uh, I just wonder uh, if it happened so recently within the last couple of years. Of course, it was um, in the middle of our pandemic also, um, which I know was difficult. Um, how many Kentuckians do you think are, are aware of and uh, realize the important work that went on uh, during those uh, two years that you worked on the project? Well, I'm not sure. We tried to do our best to get the word out because there, you, Appalachia is, you know, that's my home. So definitely there's a lot of Kentucky influence, particularly when you talk about the migration between Eastern Tennessee and uh, uh Eastern Kentucky, because uh, that's a well-traveled, well-experienced network of people who worked in the coal, iron, salt industry, the railroad building, forestry. So all of the production that happened in Appalachia uh, before the Civil War and after, African-Americans are very much involved in, especially when you start talking about forestry and coal mining and all of the, the mining industry. And even though in Kentucky we say slaves, Appalachia had a low enslaved population, what's often overlooked is that Eastern Kentucky slave owners primarily leased slave labor to others. So there you see the connection between Ohio and and, um, East Tennessee and other central places of uh, owners who actually made quite a bit of money by leasing out their slave labor to these industries. So Eastern Kentucky is more industrial slavery. Out of the the 12, could you just choose uh, one story um, and briefly tell us uh, the nature of that story and, and why it's important? Well, of course, you know, my passion is the Underground Railroad. So um, one of the podcasts we did 
was about the Underground Railroad and the connection of uh, Jonesboro, Samuel Dope, who was a Presbyterian minister in uh, East Tennessee, who actually sent the first missionaries, Presbyterian missionaries into Kentucky uh, through Cumberland Gap, through uh, Southern Kentucky, a lot of Red Oak, a lot of these little Presbyterian communities that exist along the Tennessee-Kentucky border were established by dope. And all of these um, Presbyterians were anti-slavery. So uh, a lot of those, if I make the connection back to Underground Railroad escape routes that why people are able to make their way through Kentucky from Southern states, it's because of these early anti-slavery Presbyterian ministers that dope sent out into the world. But he actually parted with the, with the what he called the high steeple Presbyterian church because he wanted a more welcoming basic form of Presbyterianism that would allow all people to join. So some of the very early Presbyterian ministers in Kentucky actually uh, joined Doak in this anti-slavery movement in Southern and Western Kentucky, which is fascinating because they even spread into Indiana. So if you trace the early Underground Railroad routes, it follows many of those early churches. Was this um, pre-Civil War, during the Civil War post? This is beginning as early as 1811. So uh, you have these ministers. uh, In fact, Kentucky's great revival comes from these ministers. They come from Doak's training into uh, the first revival, of course, is over in uh, Logan County and then spreads over to Cane Ridge. So the same ministers who began uh, the settlement in Southern Kentucky actually do help establish the Cane Ridge revival, as well as the Shakers and Quakers who joined at the Cane Ridge to to create uh, Underground Railroad locations in Southern Ohio. Alistine, can you imagine um, a child growing up today and not being able to hear these stories, uh, the truth, the history of, um, of African-Americans in Appalachia. Right. And the fact that it was always, I'm so impressed with the fact that it was an interracial movement, that very early in American history, you had these people who believed that all people of the earth were made of one blood and that that freedom was uh, definitely non-Christian and that America, if it uh, was really going to live up to its creed, should embrace the idea of anti-slavery and actually sacrifice quite a bit to do that. African-Americans, as well as those uh, whites who were shunned by uh, the dominant community for their anti-American or anti-slavery uh, position. We're so honored at Kentucky Humanities to have Alistine Turley as a member of our Speakers Bureau. She's done such uh, good work over the years, uh, can uh, be available to you at your church or your uh, civic organization. Um, anywhere there's a gathering of two or more, um, Alistine will be there uh, representing uh, Kentucky Humanities and telling uh, the story of African-Americans in Kentucky and the Underground Railroad and uh, the, the many stories that uh, and history that come out of that. So, Alistine, we uh, we appreciate uh, you being with us this, uh, today and, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. I'm, I'm going to be very uh, sure that I listen to some of these podcasts and uh, and learn a lot more about the project that you've been involved in. 
Oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for the invitation and for your listeners. I so appreciate you being here. Thank you, Alistine Turley. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.